Welcome back to Ramblin' Writers, a show dedicated to the people and ideas that inspire us as creatives. I'm your co-host and producer, Suzette Feller, and today we have a very special guest, the lovely Miss Katie Munker, a mystery author with three series and 16 books published, a seasoned marketing professional, a former North Carolina Piedmont laureate, and my mom. She's a busy lady, and we're grateful she was able to fit us in. I think you'll really enjoy our conversation, so let's go ahead and jump into it. Well, without any further ado, let's bring mom in here, Suzette. We both have beautiful and talented mothers, uh, but mine's not a writer, and Suzette's is. And so we decided to see if she would grace our podcast Welcome to our humble little third episode podcast, Katie. Oh, thank you. I'm honored to be here. Thanks. And you probably shouldn't be, but um, we're going to try to honor that. Um, Suzette, you know your mom better than most, I hope. Um, And I I know that as we were talking about her life. And I've been really excited to do this. Um, because I think she's a living, breathing example, still evolving, somebody who's pivoted in her career, you know, more times than we've written a blog article, and that's probably thousands. So if you would, let's let's take a walk down memory lane all the way to present day, and I'd even love to know some of the ideas uh, you have for the future, Katie. So Suzette, take it away. That's a a nice tie-in with my first question for you, Mom, which is, you know, you've done a lot of different things over the course of your career, so I'd love for you to give our listeners a brief rundown of your career as a writer over the past 40-plus years, both marketing and then your fiction writing. So since I was negative 10 is what you're saying. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, My father was a journalist and my mother was a journalist. So I was sort of born into this big family and I was the one they decided should be a writer one day, which of course was deadly to my desire to be a writer because who wants to be what their parents want them to be. Um, But I did end up going to UNC Chapel Hill in creative writing because they have an amazing program there. And when I graduated, um, just out of boredom, probably. I said, oh, I think I'll just move to New York City. Great spur of the moment decision to make because I was very much a Southern girl suddenly in the middle of New York City, in the middle of a recession in a transit strike. Um, And I flourished. We should all remember that given what's going on today. And I ended up taking a job on Wall Street with a private bank just to have money to pay for my rent in New York City. And I found that I love the organizational dynamics of being in a company. It's just so fascinating from a psychological standpoint. Well, of course, that's kind of the same forces that drive fiction writers is this desire to play with characters and motivations and psychological forces at work. So while I was still working at this bank in their HR department, I began writing a book and it was a literary book. So it was probably pretty stilted. I would guess there's a lot of weight that goes on your shoulders when you sit down to write a great literary masterpiece. So just for fun and to work on characterization, I thought, well, I really love you know, we're reading mysteries. Maybe I'll just try my hand at one of those. And I had so much fun doing it that, of course, the writing was better. 
the writing flowed more naturally. Um, and I, I had a very active imagination as a child, thousands of imaginary friends. And I realized, well, this is a way to bring my imaginary friends back. This is the same as being a kid and having imaginary friends. I just get to tell everyone what to do. So when I was done, um, I sent it to an agent, a couple agents, and an agent accepted me and it sold. And I realized it sold because without so many expectations, I was able to let it flow and be myself. And it was a humorous mystery, gently humorous, not sarcastic, but kind of, you know, a cozy with an attitude. Somebody once called it a reviewer, which I loved. And so I was working on Wall Street and writing books. And I never have a character in a book that's based on one person because real people, uh, you have to distill what's interesting about them. And I usually put two or three people into one, but there was plenty of inspiration. And then um, I ended up being in communications and marketing, and that was a natural for me. But then what happened was I ended up going freelance and working for a marketing firm, actually, that specialized in Wall Street. So I had this interesting combination of very high-powered financial services clients, and I was working on my books at the same time. And because I was young, I could do you know, pretty much two full-time jobs at a time. The great thing about the mystery genre is that it's based on series. And so I had a ready-made cast of characters. And every time I wanted to do a book, it was really just a matter of asking myself, well, how would they interact if this happened or that happened until I found an idea I liked? And I worked as a consultant eventually uh, for myself for about 20 years. And then I got very homesick for the South. And I was still writing books. And it was a really interesting sign from the universe, which I always like to try to look for. I was homesick. I knew that I needed to go back home to the South. Um, and I had just written a new series featuring a Southern character in New York City. And on Christmas Eve, my editor at the time called me and said, you know, I really like this new book, but New York City mysteries don't sell very well. What about moving her back down South? And I thought, if that's not a sign that I need to follow this. And, you know, by six months later, I had a house in North Carolina. I'd moved that series down South. That became my most popular series, the Casey Jones series. And I've been here ever since. And one of the things that happened was um, I'd already become very interested in politics and that led me into the nonprofit voter rights sector. And then when 2008 hit and all the mortgage crisis and the huge upheaval in financial services Fortunately, I had already switched part of my business to nonprofit consulting, marketing and communications, and I just ended up going into it full time. And when I did that, I discovered the joys of working for a mission based organization. And I have never looked back. I, I don't think I love helping um, companies for profit because I love the organizational dynamics still and the challenges. But I do at heart love this mission based organizations that I do work for now. And I probably will never go back full time to for profit companies. So that's where I am today. And I still write. And um, it's, it's, it's a sweet life, actually. And would you like to share exactly what your position is now? Because I think it's really cool, the work you do. Yeah. Right now, I am the Director of Marketing Communications at the Duke University Talent Identification Program. And what we do is we identify gifted kids that aren't being served well enough by their school systems or they're homeschooled and they need extra support and help. And we put them in touch with accelerated education programs and also their gifted peers. And we kind of give them the services they need to make the most of their potential 
potential, but also to be able to be themselves. We give them, we help them find their people. And it's, it's a great job to be in touch with these kids because they are so full of life and promise and enthusiasm. And of course they are the future. And I do very much enjoy my work with them. I want to pivot now to something that I've always thought was interesting. Um, and I think our listeners will too. I'd love to hear what it was like to be a marketing professional, not only in this fast paced world of Wall Street, but Wall Street in the 1980s. Oh, Lord, it was raining money. It was insane. And it was uh, it was sort of the explosion of financial services to you know middle America, ordinary people. A lot of regulations were not in place yet. Lots of limited partnerships being offered. Um, mutual funds were exploding. And it was really, really fun because um, it was all new. And so you had a chance to be in on the ground floor and create a marketing or communications approach to this product. You had a chance to help launch Bloomberg News, by the way. You know, you just had these wonderful opportunities. And then this magical thing happened and these things called websites popped up. And I was working with people that were absolutely brilliant. And of course, the people that can drive innovation and anything new are the people with the money. So it was big companies with money. And I helped build some of the very first interactive websites. And one of the, we called it the cat food algorithm. And what it was, it was the first website to take how much money you had saved for retirement and your age and your uh, gender. And then it would tell you at which point you were going to run out of money and have to start eating cat food unless you change your ways. And it was that use of a visual on a website at the time, you know, it was kind of groundbreaking. And the challenges from then on, they just came fast and furious all the way through the 90s and all the way up to 2008. So it was a whole lot of fun. Now, you had a whole wide range of clients, of course, including some motivated only by money. But all of that was very good grist for the mill when it came to fictional characters, too. How did retooling your career from New York City and Wall Street to North Carolina and nonprofits, how did that change you as a marketer and or as a person? Oh, that's a really good question, actually, because it did. And fortunately, it changed me in a way that I think is in step with expectations and responses of people these days. There's so many advertising messages coming at people these days that advertising, unfortunately, has become synonymous with trying to sell you something you don't need. And so I try to, in my marketing communications approach now, say, really walk that empathy trail, walk in the shoes, the whole experience mindset and what do they want? What do they need? How can I explain this with clarity? And what that ends up doing is putting you on the same side of the table with that person. So instead of trying to sell them something, you're actually are helping them and benefiting them. The secret with that, as anybody who's ever had a client knows, is that that might be the best way to communicate and even the best way to sell something. But clients often expect marketing to be all about alliteration and cute headlines. And and believe me, I'm not above a good hook to catch your eye and plays on words. I love an idiom twisted just a little bit. But clients will also want something sometimes that is more artificial than I think is best for them. And you kind of have to explain that really when you have all this noise, if you're just super clear and focused, maybe that is what gets you to cut through the noise. You know, what was part of your journey uh, echoes a lot of what I've seen 
uh, in my career, and I've been in sales a lot of my career, pivoted largely to marketing, you know, 11 years ago, but I've still, I mean, I sell all the clients that do business with us now. And so what I've noticed, and it's, it's sort of a, a generational thing, uh, but there are certain ones of us who kind of swim within that current and are a little bit ahead of our time. Um, the, there, there's sort of a boomer way of developing business and an Xer way that's a little milder, but millennials. And then I haven't decided what Suzette is. I don't, she's either a kid millennial or an old fart Gen Z. I, I don't know what she is. Yeah, I, she's definitely an older person in a young person body because she's very mature. <laughs> yeah, I and mean, she does have a lot of the sensibilities on the research that I've seen. She's got the kind of recoiling sensibilities, recoiling against the worst excesses of the millennials, mainly their exhibitionism. Um, but one thing that the millennials have gotten so right is demanding value. Gen Z's even more hardcore on that. Like if you're not front and center with the value you're bringing, they're literally giving you seconds to communicate that. That's right. And I think that's a better way to articulate the difference in the approach. It's not that uh, you can no longer be funny or glib or whatever. It's the difference between trying to sell something through nothing but glitz and high pressure and lots of visibility versus having a really true value proposition, targeting your audience that could respond to that and then being very upfront with them. So I think that's a better way to put it. And also I wanted to say to you something you said, you know, when I said I love working for mission-based organizations, I also love for-profit companies that see a niche often for smaller and mid-sized businesses and they say, I am going to fill that niche. And they take a service previously only available to huge, you know, other companies, and they make it affordable for small and mid-sized businesses. And to me, that is a mission, you know, and I very much admire that. When I look at our client list, we have, we are blessed to have a few, what you might call mid-sized companies, middle market. But our sweet spot has always been, you know, the companies with that are, solo entrepreneurs to let's say 25 to 50 employees. But, you know, to play in our space, the water's choppy everywhere. You know, there are so many big companies right now that are suffering that have lost half their market cap and laid off hundreds or thousands of people. So there's this myth that the space where Suzette and I play is, extra choppy it's just smaller yeah i saw that dynamic at play in 2008 where we had a great niche we were a smaller consulting company for communications and marketing but when literally a client list of say 200 had contracted to 24 by the time it became public and everything just imploded and the first thing that happened were the giant ad agencies that could afford to do spec work and present the client with three different well-fleshed out ideas because they were going to place millions in ads and get 10 or 15% of all that ad buy money. That's how they made their money. Well, they had no way to make money anymore. And the first thing they did was come down to our niche uh, for smaller, mid-sized companies. But they weren't very good about it because 
they didn't have to investigate the value and how they could add value. They were all about the glitz and the selling and, and getting the visibility. And there was a time, to be fair, when if you had a really great groundbreaking marketing campaign, you really could get a lot of free publicity in the newspapers and everything. I don't know that that's the case anymore. I don't feel like it is. But I think it does kind of go back to your, are you wired to add value? And if you are, in my opinion, you will have more sticking power no matter how many people come after you to compete. Ramblin' Writers is brought to you by Parklife Communications, your partners in thought leadership, copywriting, social media, and much more. Our podcast isn't the only place where we share our marketing insights. You can find helpful tips on our blog or download our free guide to small business thought leadership at parklifecom.com. So, you know, many writers would like to publish their own work. Um, But for me, I've put virtual pen to virtual paper several times and just not ever gotten too far with it. How have you managed 16 freaking books, if we've got the number right, over a career where you've stayed at least as busy as us? Yeah, that, that's, a, that's a good question, and I do have a very specific answer to that. First of all, while you might be able to pull off two full-time careers when you're younger, you can't when you get older. You, just, you don't want to. You don't have as much energy for that kind of work, work, work drive. Secondly, if you have kids – Forget about it. So the system I'm about to tell you is one that I developed when Zuzit was little um, so that I also had to spend time with her. And and I am speaking as a fiction writer. It probably could work for nonfiction writers as well. But I think that, number one, you have to work from an outline. And here's why. You're going to have to work when you have half an hour free, maybe even just 15 minutes free, maybe an hour free, maybe while your child is, uh, you know, taking gymnastics lessons, you could sit there and write. If you have an outline and you've spent enough time on that outline, you don't have to go back and reread what got you to that point and figure out where you dropped the thread and where you're going to pick it up. You'll just go, oh, I'm right here on that outline. I need to write this scene. I'm going to do that. And so an outline, which kind of describes what you want to have happen within each chapter and even scene by scene, will help you hit the ground running. And I think that's just essential. Plus, I like to say my favorite part of a book, I call it book architecture. I would be just a book architecture if I could. If, if you know, uh, Random House or Simon & Schuster would come to me and say, oh, we have these best-selling authors, but they've run out of plots. Can you help? I'd go, oh, my God, yes. I love coming up with a plot and an arc and character development. But doing the actual work, you know, my attention spans wandered off by then. You take it and make it real. So if you're listening editors, please call me, Um, because I am wired to come up with a thousand imaginary scenarios a day. So number one, an outline and love that outline. Have fun with that outline. I even go so far as to have a track on the outline for the plot, the action, the events that actually happen, a track on the outline for the secondary plot, because I like books you know, you're writing for people that grew up on, on television and motion pictures, and they always have an A, a B, and often a C storyline, right? So I like to uh, also have emotional arc tracking of my characters because, you know, uh, what's the fun if your character doesn't change over the course of a book? So I track a lot of different things on my outline. And then the other thing is that you have to protect 
the energy that you need to write a book, especially if it's fiction, in my opinion. And so what I do, what has worked for me is I did not ever think I was a morning person. But to get up before the rest of the world at 5 a.m. or 6 a.m., depending on when your child gets up and when you go to work and give even that first hour to your book, it energizes me so much. It's, it's like meditating for me. If I can get up that day and do that, then I feel great. Thirdly, don't beat up on yourself if you miss a day or you can only do it once a week or a few days a week, because here's why. And I hate to throw cold water on admiring fiction writers out there. The only guaranteed reward you're going to get from writing a book is the actual privilege of the process of sitting down and writing that book and giving life to your characters and your story. And that is a huge payoff. That is what gets me going and makes me feel like myself. So, um, you know, find that time just for yourself, but don't have a clock ticking over your head because chances are very slim anyway. You're going to end up on that bestseller list. So why suck all the joy that you're going to get out of it before you've even started by putting that pressure on yourself? So take as long as you need to, to write a book, write for a specific audience and judge your success in whether you reach that audience, not by whether you make money on it. You've accomplished a whole lot in your career from publishing 16 books to being named North Carolina's Piedmont Laureate to working on some truly impactful projects in your nonprofit work. So out of all these things, what do you consider your greatest accomplishment and why? Wow. Well, first of all, I was instructed beforehand that I'm not allowed to say my daughter. Um, (laughs) That's boring. It is boring, but it's also true. I mean, she is pretty awesome. Uh, I think... But to answer that question, you have to go back to my childhood in this crazy house I grew up in where literally every day you never knew who was going to walk in that house. I mean, it was the strangest parade of outsiders, down and outs. Every My parents would have Christmas Eve parties full of the weirdest, most eccentric cast of characters from artists and professors from the universities. My parents were reporters, so lots of journalists, lots of people from politics. Even we had this woman named Sally Rand would come visit, and she was a world-famous fan dancer. In um, the movie The Right Stuff, that's the woman who dances for them when LBJ is president behind these big fans. Well, she became friends with my parent. Every time she came through on her tour, she was stripping and doing these fan dances when she was in her 70s. Now, she was wearing a flesh-colored body stocking, but she was awesome. And so we had all these strange characters, none of whom fit into society and what were supposed to be, quote, ordinary, unquote, people, as if that was even a real thing. But um, so I grew up loving people that were just themselves and outside the realm of stereotypes and traditional pathways. So in my mind, my greatest achievement is that I write books full of characters like that. And to me, that's giving them a voice that's making it plain that they deserve a place in this world that is recognizing the richness of the uh, uniqueness of people and the differences between us. And it's telling people that you should be who you are and it's okay to be who you are. And um, 
it sounds presumptuous that I would think I had achieved that, but I do hear from people who read my books and say they identified with that person or that person. You do find a lot of people from a lot of different economic levels and backgrounds, all kind of um, getting along because my books usually key in on a few aspects of the human condition that we all share, you know? So I, I think maybe it's just being able to show the humor and the love and the richness in having a life full of the very, you know, uh, pageant of life. What is that REM song I love so much? Oh, that's the album Life's Rich Pageant. Yes, thank you. Life's Rich Pageant. What what do you see as the value of writing in today's world, both to organizations and to society in general? Well, I think I, I'd like to separate uh, writing from narrative and stories uh, from my answer here. Uh, unfortunately, when it comes to actual writing, as in copy and word count, man, you better you better get it down to the essentials now. And you better put it in that first paragraph, and you better layer it by having your message in the headline, the subheads, callouts, as well as in the body copy. Because people, just as people communicate differently, people read differently too. And some people skim, and some will see one word, and some will go ahead and dive into the whole thing. Fortunately, layering that copy is easy to do. But if it's words, you better keep it short but sweet. But when it comes to narrative, again, you go back to we're now in a world full of people that have grown up on television and motion pictures and advertisement stories like the Folger Coffee one. Remember that when the man and woman were borrowing coffee back and forth and the whole nation was on the edge of the seat about a series of commercials, for God's sakes. You know, but the point is that people learn and people pay attention and people feel through narrative and stories. So I don't think there will ever be a world that doesn't need storytellers and people that can make stories that have meaning in them, whether it's a 15-second story or a five-hour-long movie. So they'll definitely always have a place for that. Okay, and um, my last question. I always like questions like this because I feel like they're, they could be useful to a lot of people. Um, if you could go back in time, what advice would you give to your younger self at the very start of your career when you were just a wee receptionist at Lehman Brothers? Is that it? Brown Brothers Harriman. Oh, it was Brown Brothers Harriman. <laughs> yes, that the pedigreed uh, private bank, the largest and oldest private bank in America. What advice would I give? Um, you know, I wish that I had cared less what people thought. You know, and, and in fact, when you talk about creativity and imagination, you think of when you were young, there's not a, a small child under five that isn't overflowing with imagination and creativity. I mean, every child. And somehow we lose that and we lose it right about the time we start to go to school. And I can't help but think that judgment and caring what other people think is the death of creativity. You know, and when I was in my early 20s and I was trying to be myself and separate from my parents, um, who always want to be a writer and come back around to the fact that I wanted to be a writer too. You know, I cared way too much what other people thought, whether it was my friends or parents or whatever. So, I, but I think that's just a confidence to be yourself that comes with age. And I don't know that you can get around that. So I believe the advice I would give to myself is if I it was to stick with every goal I was trying to achieve just a little bit longer than I thought I should or could. You know, I feel like there were many moments when I gave up 
pray before something big might have happened. And I had to look at that dynamic and say, well, am I giving up because I'm on the verge of success? And I don't know if I really want that. Do I like trying and striving more than I like, you know, really getting there? So that would be it would be if you think you should give up, just stick it out a little bit longer and see what happens. I think that's fantastic advice. And I'm just glad I've got a couple of years left to live myself where I can execute on that. Well, Suzette, have we done it all? Yeah, that was fabulous. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. I, and, I, and if any and if any of uh, Brian Suzette's clients are listening, I just want to say I've worked with a lot of marketing companies and people in the world, and I think that authenticity in a relationship and in the marketing and communications is so important, and you guys have made a great choice in choosing them. You, your future is in good hands, I would say. Well, we appreciate your endorsement, that. That means a lot. I mean, that's exactly what we're going after. All right, I'm going to go eat lunch with a three-year-old, almost three-year-old. Oh, that's good. Have you got your hazmat suit ready? (laughs) Thanks again to my lovely mom, Katie Munger, for joining us today. If you want to learn more about her, you can visit her website at katiemunger.com. That's with a -A K-A-T-Y. And thanks to you, our audience, for listening to another episode of Ramblin' Writers. We'll be back very soon.